Virgin Radio Pride. For me, being trans since I was a kid has... The best way I can just explain it is, you know, Peter Pan has that shadow that does not go away. That shadow is always there, regardless. That's always been in the back of my mind, like how I feel about my body, how I feel about my existence, how I sound, my dysphoria. Now that I have the language, the tools, the knowledge and the support, I'm not working against this shadow anymore. Like I'm embracing, I'm embracing the shadow, the shadow is embracing me and like we're now becoming one. It's really exhausting to lie to the people around you and to let them believe something about you which you know not to be true. You're with yourself 24-7. You're with other people less than that by default. So when you stop lying to yourself, when you come out and when you accept that and embrace yourself for who you are, it's just an absolutely liberating feeling. Like with any coming out, any journey where you realize who you are and that you can be that person, it's hugely fulfilling, it's life-saving, it's totally transformed who I was from like a very sad, very angry person into a happy, fulfilled, functional <laughs> member of society. I've talked about the fact that I work in a queer bookshop and something that has been so healing is that people come in and they kind of really nervously might go over to the trans section. I had someone the other day who came in and ended up crying. I said I didn't realise I was non-binary until I met someone who was non-binary and then they turned to me and said I think that's what's happening to me right now and cried and I thought I, I can't believe I'm a trans elder at 27, you know? <laughs> You just heard some of the most personal truths from wonderful people within the transgender community, talking about their journey when they came out as trans or non-binary. Hi, I'm Stephanie Hurst, and thanks for joining us on Living Authentically, Trans Truths on Virgin Radio Pride. Now, a lot of you may know me from my work on radio over the years. I've literally been on the radio since I was a toddler. You may see me on TV shows like Jeremy Vine on Five, which I'm a regular panellist. I was on Loose Women recently. I popped up on Lorraine for a few years. Uh, you may have seen me public speaking. Uh, I received an honorary doctorate from Leeds University for my contribution to public life. So technically, I'm a doctor. But if you've got a rush, I can't look at it or anything like that. I also hosted the National Chart Show on a Sunday afternoon, that coveted show on a Sunday when everyone used to listen to the charts back in the day. And I got to do it. I was like, this incredible career. When I was young, kind of preschool or maybe infants. And I remember when they used to separate the girls and the boys in the classroom. They'd say, all the boys go to one side of the classroom, all the girls go to the other. So I'd literally just go and sit with the girls. And the teacher would go, no, you belong over there. And I was like, what? Because I, I couldn't verbalise the way I felt. I just felt as if I should be with the girls because that was, well, I guess my natural state of comfortableness. But this happened time and time and time again. And they mentioned it to my mum, but she couldn't get any information. There was no Google back then. So I battled with it for years. But the sticking plaster for me was radio. That was the thing that made everything go away. So I just threw myself into the world of radio thinking that the gender dysphoria would just would go away and distracting myself. It didn't. And then, because I knew my gender was wrong, I had to literally put it all on the line. And I lost my entire career for a time. And when I finally transitioned, I just felt as if my world became in colour. For those that have become their true authentic selves, it just feels like you've been plugged in, doesn't it? It's an incredible feeling. But over the last few years, there's been a lot of focus on the transgender community. And while some of that has been understanding and respectful, a large part has been used to spread lies and misinformation. So for the next hour, we're on a quest to bust myths and misconceptions about the trans community and hear truths from real people with lived experience. There's this fear around trans people and trans bodies and that they're dangerous. That we're trying to take women's spaces or that we're trying to influence children. It's either go into one bathroom and get shouted at 
or go into another bathroom and get beaten up. We are sort of portrayed to be this big threat to democracy and society. We'll also join the amazing trans organisation Mermaids for a discussion with members of the public as they explore and squash some of the misinformation surrounding trans people. Truth or myth, trans people are making women's spaces unsafe. Oh my goodness, absolute myth. <laughs> First though, we spoke to several people from the trans community. Paris Monroe from Gadio Breakfast, Cleo Madeline from Gendered Intelligence, Virgin Radio Pride, Shivani Dave, and Grey Marlowe from Queer Lit Bookshop in Manchester about the most common and harmful misconceptions they've encountered whilst exploring their gender identity. There's this perception that trans people you know, have an agenda, the idea that there is a trans lobby, you know, that we influence politics, or that we influence schools, that we're trying to take women's spaces, or that we're trying to influence children. Trans people being confused or trans people doing it for attention is a... I've, I've heard that one before. Like, I'm not putting myself through all of this to be the next viral sensation. Some people get asked, if you're trans, what's in between your pants? My name's Shivani Dave. I'm non-binary. My pronouns are they, them. There's a really hurtful misconception that where people think that because I'm non-binary, they think that I'm not trans or they try to grade me against a scale of trans enough. There's always the most common misconception, which is when people see me and make an assumption about how I like to be identified. Someone might call me ma'am, miss, young lady, but also I get people who call me sir or young man. Hi, I'm Grey. I use they, them pronouns. I think there's this fear around trans people and trans bodies and that they're dangerous or that trans people are trying to convert other people or, you know, someone just now, I mentioned that I was doing this interview and asked me what I thought about teaching six-year-olds that trans people exist in sex education. There's clearly a, a, a problem there that trans people are considered somehow sexual or deviant or dangerous. So I think it's that idea that trans people are somehow dangerous or deviant that has become really problematic and especially has been the message that is being pushed by um, the British media in particular. Now, the world governing body of swimming has voted to ban transgender athletes from competing in women's events unless they've transitioned by the age of 12. You can't write off Christianity or religion just like I that. I can, there's, I can. Any religion, I'm not writing off you take Christianity. Who's I'm, religious. I'm writing off yeah. religion okay. in if that's going to stop you from helping people. You're a public servant. Okay. So do Working you believe... for the NHS of but, taxpayers' money, you should be helping people, not remove... using your own beliefs to play God. Research conducted by The Guardian reveals that only 2% of the UK population think that trans issues are the most important problem facing our country today. Despite this, in 2019, the British press increased their reporting on trans issues by 350% compared to media coverage back in 2012. And don't we know it? The explosion of negative coverage has continued, often peddling dangerous lies and circulating misinformation. There is a culture in the UK media to strike up fear in villainising a minority. The minority that is being villainised is trans people. I don't know why it happens. I don't know what the motivations are. I don't even know if it is sort of everybody sitting down in a room and saying, this is what we're going to do today, or if it just happens by sort of confirmation bias and prejudice and bigotry, but it is happening. Because trans people are a smaller and less well-understood minority, it's easier to curry bad press and misinformation about us which means that it's then easier to build these policy agendas against us and then those can become the sharp tip of the wedge that is used to drive for regressive political gains. And, uh, and as we've seen from the US, anti-trans movements have joined forces with really kind of flowed into anti-feminist movements, anti-abortion movements, anti-LGBT movements. And so I think we need to be really, really cautious to think about how the media 
when it targets trans people, might be aiding, abetting a wider narrative. I wonder if there's a situation where we kind of need to have a scapegoat or, or something to demonise for whatever reason. Is that is that a way of distracting from perhaps other political issues, from things like extreme poverty, the living crisis, austerity? That's the only thing that I can think of as to why, um, other than just hatred. Media monitoring organisation GLAD released the findings of a survey which showed that the number of people who report knowing a trans individual today is around 20%. This means that 80% of people learn about the community through word of mouth, education or via third-party sources like media. The vast majority of people in this country do not know a trans person. We are 1% of the population. The way that we are sort of portrayed to be this big threat to democracy and society means that people will be in fear. People will panic. People will be scared. And they will make judgments about communities and about people who they've never met before, which is just a form of bigotry. And that is probably one of the most harmful things that's happening towards the trans community right now. So, before we get into debunking the myths, let's look into the negative impact that misinformation can have on the lives of trans and non-binary people in 2022. You get street harassment. I sort of lost friends at work in the past. I've lost professional opportunities because there were sort of more senior people than me who, for various reasons, didn't like trans people, were opposed to trans people. But I think what really stings and what has always really stung is the lack of support that if you are a trans person, that you should learn to live with this sort of thing. I have had people say, I would do you if you were a girl still. You looked better with longer hair. Why are you getting your chest chopped off? Don't you think that's like against the religion? Going into bathrooms, having Groups of people looking at you like you don't belong is awful. Negative things inside the home with yourself um, has been a really, really hard time and a really, really hard thing for me. Not only do I get, you know, sticks and stones and all that outside the house, but it's that inner transphobia it's been a really, really tough thing of, oh, maybe I should do this so that it'll be easier. But there's only so much you can, can take before it eats you alive. I had a whole period of like struggling with seeing myself as like desirable because like trans and non-binary people are, are kind of really left out the picture in that way. And people maybe not knowing that I'm trans and making really transphobic comments around me or kind of just general disdain if I do come out. And there is, every time I come out, there is fear. Coming out to my family was really, really tough. Um, I just think it wasn't understood. And there was a lot of kind of conversation around grief, which I find really difficult. That was really painful. That was for me probably the worst thing. With that comes a feeling of isolation because coming out does often mean that you're exposing yourself. You're making yourself vulnerable. You're saying to people, this is me, do you still like me? I think the most prevalent place for negative experiences has been online. I think when you're open about your gender identity online, it can be a really toxic space because trolls. The anti-bullying charity Ditch the Label and consumer intelligence company Brandwatch spent over three years analysing 10 million online posts. And this reveals a torrent of transphobic abuse with over 1.5 million anti-trans posts. Whether it's the media, politicians or people spreading lies and misinformation, hate crimes targeting trans people have spiked. 41% of trans men and trans women responding to a Stonewall survey said that they'd experienced a hate crime or incident because of their gender identity in the past 12 months. And since the UK's golden year of 2012, recorded transgender hate crimes have increased by an astonishing 650%. 
Mermaids is a children's charity based in Leeds and London. Their work is vital to young trans people and their parents or carers. The organisation has grown into one of the UK's leading LGBTQI charities, supporting thousands with secure online communities, local community groups, helpline services, outreach programmes and so much more. They were kind enough to hold a discussion on transgender issues for us with the aim of busting myths and misconceptions around being transgender and setting the record straight. Here on Virgin Radio Pride, we join Mermaid's Youth Rights Advocate Manager Lee Lester, alongside Kat Haig, Ian Mallett and Lucy Daly in Leeds. Uh-huh. Virgin Radio Pride. I am Lee Lester and I'm from the organisation Mermaids. You're joining me for this Distorted Studios in Leeds and we're looking to dispel the myths and misconceptions surrounding the trans and non-binary community. So thank you for joining us. Whatever you want to take from this, I really hope today we can help you get the answers that you need. So we're going to start by introducing some wonderful people who are going to be joining us. So we have Kat, Ian and Lucy. Big welcome to you. So coming to you first, Kat, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Lee. Yes, uh, my name is Kat Haig. I have worked in HR for 20 years and I also have three young children. I go by the pronoun she, her. Fantastic. Very, very welcome. Um, Over to you, Ian. Hello. Yes, I'm Ian. I go by pronouns he and him. I come from a background of working in the NHS, particularly uh, clinical research. Thank you, Ian. And finally, to Lucy. Hi, I'm Lucy. Um, My pronouns are she, her. I'm very interested today because I kind of just want to get to know more, get some questions answered. Yeah, just become more knowledgeable on the subject. So today we're going to look at several different categories relating to gender orientation. We're going to look at sexual orientation and gender identity, surgery. We're going to go into sort of healthcare and mental health, public spaces, sports, and for me, the most important one, trans children and young people. So I think we should get straight to it. But just a a quick warning for anyone listening. There are going to be some heavy topics uh, discussed within this focus group. It's just the nature of of the topic that we will be maybe exploring themes of suicide, self-harm, mental health and hate crime. So the first statement, a sort of truth or myth, is there are more than two genders. What are people's thoughts on that? My gut feeling is there's more than two and there's probably more than the three that I'm aware of. Um, Non-binary, I'm familiar with, gender neutral. Interesting. Yeah, Ian? Well, I'd agree with Kat, really. Um, I think things are, you know, really binary anyway in life. Uh, and I think there's a spectrum of all sexualities and genders. And for me, it's allowing people to explore what they feel they want, how they want to describe themselves rather than sort of pinning a label on them. Anything to add there? Well, what I thought was there's two, like, biological sexes. But gender is now kind of referred to as a spectrum and it's not necessarily, like, set. Brilliant. I mean, you three could... Do my job. You've described that really, really well. Well done. Yes, there are two kind of binary sexes that we talk about. Sex and gender are different. One of the misconceptions and and traps we fall into as as humans is confusing the two and assuming that they're the same. Sex is about your chromosomes, your genitals, things like that. It's harder to change your biological sex. They are things about you that are medical. But when we talk about gender, we're talking about your expression. We're talking about your sense of self, who you are, how you feel. And they can be not aligned with one another. You know, you can have a a natal biological sex, but you can identify physically and emotionally and spiritually in in any other way you want. Putting you three on the spot a little bit, do any of you feel confident to try and have a crack at what you think it kind of means to be non-binary? Okay. (laughs) Go on. Um, (laughs) That you don't necessarily identify with what we as a society now think is female or male. Sometimes you might feel more female, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you fully identify with what that you think that means or what society think that means. Yeah. yeah. If I had a prize to give you, I would. You, you'd win prize of the day. That's absolutely spot on. It's simply that many people just don't identify strictly a boy, a girl, a male, a female, and it's this idea that it could identify as both. Do you know the, uh, the word cisgender? Would you, would you know what that meant? You're identified as the gender you're born with. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite of, of transgender. It's, yeah, it's just a, a flip to that. Another myth, truth or myth, sexual orientation and gender identity are separate. Yes. Yeah. 
That's an easy yeah. one. <laughs> I, hope so. I hope so. Um I hope. Help, yeah. yeah, yeah. They are they are. Um they are separate things. They might have a bearing on each other, you know, your sexuality may change um due to your you know, your gender. So I I'm a, I'm a trans man, but I'm, I'm married to a cis woman. When we first got together, I identified as a lesbian and I got with my partner and we were in a lesbian female relationship. Of course, I then transitioned to be a male. So now as a trans male, we're actually in a kind of straight relationship. So actually my sexuality has changed without anything actually changing in terms of my attraction. So it's important to say that one can have a bearing on the other, but they are separate. And there's been actually an ongoing debate happening around whether or not the T should sit with under the LGB. Um, because it is separate. I don't know what anyone's thoughts on that. Speaking as a, as a gay man, I know that sort of going through that long history of, you know, when I first started student activism, it was only gay and lesbian. And you, as you referred to, you know, sort of bisexuality became part of, of you know, the sort of um, the campaign for equality. I think, you know, there's a lot that the community offered in terms of support, could support the sort of trans community. But I think also what I touched on before as a gay man is the assumption that, I know about the trans community and I, I wouldn't dare to say that I could speak or be extremely knowledgeable. That's why I'm here today. And I suppose it's that understanding about what you can do collectively. And I know Stonewall originally didn't have the T, did they? That's right. And there was some debate at the time about sort of trans community and what could be offered to them. And I think there is a great deal, but I don't think you could necessarily assume that we will understand each other. You know, it's like gay men don't completely understand lesbians, lesbians don't understand bisexuals completely. You know, we, we know of them and we can sympathise with their struggles, but, you know, some of their, their support and needs are different. Yeah, and yeah. I think if I think about it from a workplace perspective, mm -hmm. LGBT, it's helpful to have an umbrella term, but actually most workplaces just focus on LG and not the T. You know, there is some correlation and dependencies. So from some perspective, it's helpful to have it under that one term, but understand the vast differences between mm. them. Great. So moving into topic two, which is surgery. So a kind of truth or myth again. Um, undergoing surgery is not the top priority for trans people. True or false? Does it not depend on how that person feels? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of truth. It's not everybody's top priority, but you're exactly right. It completely depends on the individual. Every trans person has a different story, desire, goal, and that surgery isn't the only way for you to transition. There's, there's medical transition, which is having, you know, medical surgeries, taking hormones such as estrogen and testosterone, but you can also socially transition as well. And that can be things like just changing your name, your pronouns, it doesn't have to be that you have have surgeries and there is no pressure for you to do so in order to identify as, as trans or non-binary. Do, do you think it gets more of a high profile because, as you've described, the social stuff you can you can do yourself, but, you know, unless you're very rich and can you know, afford private health care, you're dependent on the state to give you those surgeries and it's not an easy process yeah no that is actually that's a great point so about one in four trans and non-binary people actually choose gender affirmative surgeries is that because there is not as much access to having those would there be more if it was an easier process to actually be seen we will never know unless healthcare for trans people uh, and is an easier process i'm happy to talk very openly about myself i'm somebody who's undergoing hormone replacement therapy so I take testosterone which helps me become more masculinized. I've had top surgery which is um, having my breast surgically removed to have a flatter chest but I have no desire to have bottom surgery which is the the lower surgery. That's not something I want you know isn't a priority for me. Does that make me less trans? To me absolutely not. I'm completely valid in that. It's just important to note that when we're talking about trans people and we're debating their lives and their uh their existence and their right to be, we've got to think of the, you know, the hurdles and the stresses that these people are, you know, are on to just basically feel like they're authentic selves. I say, so a question for you all, what do you think would happen if people try to change their mind about transitioning and do you think that's a common occurrence? Gosh, that's a big question, isn't, isn't it? it? I guess it's, it depends what stage of the transition that that individual is at and I imagine there's a lot of toing and froing and, and changing your mind before you're absolutely sure. And I assume the same. I mean, based on what we were talking about, just the, you know, inability to access the services anyway, it could be sort of four years or more. So I assume that by the time you get to sort of surgery stage, you really are very sure. 
but they'll always find the one, won't they, who changes their mind. Yeah, you've, you've, you've all nailed exactly how, how I feel about it. Stats show that 99% of trans people that undergo some form of gender affirmation surgeries don't regret it in any way. In fact, quite the opposite. It's the first time that they actually feel affirmed and, and, and valid and, and authentic. As a tiny majority of people do detransition. Um, we spoke to Cleo Madeline about that. Recent research by Dr Jack Turban et Alia at Stanford Medical School has found that around 2% of people experience some kind of transition-related regret. But the important thing to note is that the majority of those aren't because they're dissatisfied with the results of transition itself, but because of social or economic reasons. That's to say, it's not the medical transition that leads to regret but the experience of transphobia afterwards. It's also worth noting that while 2% might seem like a lot for a medical procedure, the average rates of regret for most medical procedures are much, much higher. OK, on to our topic three. Uh, this is healthcare and mental health. So truth or myth, being transgender isn't a choice. I don't think it's a choice. It's like, as, as a gay man, I get asked this, you know, I've been asked this question, you know, when did I choose to be gay? It's like, well, I don't ever remember being straight. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I didn't choose. And I assume it's the same, you know, as, as Kat and Lucy were saying, you know, it's people know from a very early age. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Consensus in the room, everyone. Uh, yeah, being trans is no more of a choice than any other of our characteristics. It's just it's just part of, of, of who we are. Many of us trans folk know quite early on that something, it's like you say, something isn't right, something doesn't, and it's, it just takes a while to get the words for it. You know, yeah. they're not readily yeah. available. That's the only difference is from when I was little, I knew something was, was misaligned, wasn't right, but there was absolutely no way of knowing. I was young before, before the internet, so didn't get to, to Google stuff and find out, and I lived in a very rural village where the only way of getting any kind of information about anything was the local youth club running the village hall by my parents' friends. So there was absolutely no way that I was going to ask those youth workers any questions about my sexuality, gender identity. So it's absolutely not a choice. And anyone who tries to sort of deny that element of themselves is subject to some very poor mental health in the yeah. future. It's something that if you repress and hold in, it, it comes out eventually. And there is so many trans folk that have come out so much later in life. Yeah. I think there was a, a report of somebody who was 86 who mm -hmm. finally had the confidence to come out at 86 because they, they wanted to pass away being the person that they were always meant to be, which I think is just both heartbreaking and, and also really touching. Truth or myth, trans people need therapy, not surgery. I think therapy is useful, but I don't think it's like an answer not to be trans. Mm. I suppose also the depends is what kind of therapy which if you're talking about the therapy which is to discourage them from uh, gender reassigning or is it they need help and support? And I, I, you know, I would assume that, that you know, they'd appreciate that support but not the talking about of what you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting that we assume it's one or the other or that one has weight on the other. I think most trans people would absolutely welcome some, yeah. some therapy. Is it essential in order to feel your authentic self? Well, that's up to the individual to decide. Yeah. The medical term that, that people give when somebody is struggling with their gender identity is gender dysphoria. And that's something that can be diagnosed by, by a clinician. And that needs to happen in order to have any kind of surgical options or hormone therapy you have to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria for me that feels quite difficult to almost say that there's something wrong that's a medical condition but that's the way it is and you need that diagnosis in order to proceed it must put a lot of pressure on trans people because they must feel like they've got another test am i trans enough and we've talked about being on spectrums and things like that that must be an added burden to feel like you've got to meet the grade to be able to get the treatment and, and if we look, you know, for decades, there's been attempts to change people's sexual orientation, people's gender identities, mm. um, drugs, lobotomies, institutionalisation. These have been tried and they don't work. I say, so a question for you all, are trans people just suffering from mental illness? You know, possibly they have like, they go through issues with the mental health, but I don't think being trans is a, is a mental illness. 
they're completely two separate things. And as you said, you have to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria. And I think that's maybe the health system cl- just kind of clarifying for themselves and for them to, again, like kind of put people in a box just so that they can say, right, that's wrong. This is the things we need to do. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Lee, you touched on it. To have that diagnosis that something is wrong, mm-hmm. that must be so challenging to go through. And I wonder is there, in future is an opportunity to disrupt how that's done, like how people are diagnosed or supported that you have to have a label before you can access treatment. Like Even like the terminology, I think. Yeah. Just changing the word. Like, it just doesn't sound great does it yeah it was only till very very recently that um being trans was taken off the world health organization's mental health conditions list it was very recent that it wasn't seen as a mental health condition so are trans people just suffering from mental illness we spoke to paris munro about this throughout my life since i was a kid i always questioned who i was what was i supposed to look like and i had a very very nasty ongoing and still to this day actually um mental battle with with who i am and and how i identify as and i actually have thought about um and attempted suicide um because i felt like there was something wrong with me um part of me felt like i was being punished from another life of doing something bad or something like that i felt so alone and I just felt like nobody else was going through that and I didn't quite understand how to put it into words. So another question for you, is trans-inclusive healthcare expensive? Probably not in like comparison with any other healthcare that we provide. Yeah. yeah. And as you sort of alluded to at the beginning, some of the things that need to change don't need to be about treatments. It's about how you engage with people and being accessible mm. and language, which... That doesn't need to cost anything. That's brilliant. I'm glad you're all saying that. I think that is another misconception it's very important to address, that it would not cost more than so many other procedures that are available to people with a multitude of other conditions. And if we are marketing it as a condition, why are we not putting some of our our money into healthcare, into helping people feel well and feel right and feel validated? If we, you know, you can't kind of have it one way and not the other. You ready? Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Living Authentically, Trans Trues on Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Stephanie Hurst. We're halfway through our talk with Mermaid Lee Lester and our live discussion group, where we've been busting the myths and misconceptions surrounding the trans and non-binary community. So far, we've discussed gender identity and sexual orientation, surgery, healthcare and mental health. We now move into public spaces, sport and trans children. So on to public spaces such as toilets, prisons, changing facilities, etc. So truth or myth, trans people are making women's spaces unsafe. Oh my goodness, absolute myth. (laughs) (laughs) This topic, like you said, is, is out there at the moment, isn't it? And it's so unfounded. Absolutely a myth we need to bust. Absolutely. And hopefully we can do that a little bit between us all. We can uh, hopefully give people listening some really useful information about this because it concerns me deeply as I am I'm seeing the effects of this happen, especially the effects it's having on trans youth um, who are frightened to go into spaces now as trans people. I had a young person call me as soon as the, the kind of guidance came out around um, single sex spaces and said, can I still use my gym? I'm just really frightened. What are my rights? Can they arrest me? And this is this is like 13 year old that's you know that's heartbreaking this is what we're talking about we're talking about the people it really affects the vulnerability of these people so i'm sure you've you've all heard the claims that if we allow people to self-certify and to use the facility in which you know a changing room or a toilet or a public space that they think is the most appropriate to their gender identity that they will put other people at risk. Uh, yeah, and the argument is that trans women are just men pretending to be trans women in order to access spaces, to, to threaten, to be sexually inappropriate towards cis women. I just don't even know what it's based on. There's no evidence, is there? There's no examples of it happening. So where it's coming from a very old-fashioned viewpoint, I think a lot of this comes from a place of fear, a lack of education, scaremongering, holding on to points that will really resonate with people. Yeah, Yeah, it does feel like an unbalanced, you know, Mm. viewpoint. And a trans person is far more vulnerable in a public space 
that has been proven and there are stats to, to back this up. But there is no evidence, there really isn't. And the tiny percentage of men that access women's spaces to assault women should not be confused with the lives of trans women. And my argument is a sticker on a toilet that says man or woman would not deter a sexual predator, regardless. Yeah. And I think you're more likely to be killed by your own fridge. Than to be, uh, <laughs> I think there was a really fun study. It, it was very lighthearted, but it was a really great yeah. study that showed the likelihood of actually what you were more at threat from. And you're more yeah. at threat from, yeah, death by fridge than you are from a sexual assault by a trans woman. And do you think that trans people are confused? Are they trying to trick other people? What could possibly the benefits be from doing so. Is that the predatory places. thing you were talking about? Yeah. That's the, I particularly guess. the male to female, um, that somehow that's predatory. That's the trope, isn't it, that's in the, the red tops and the, the tabloids, isn't it, as a cover for? Yeah, this is like the Trojan horse. Yeah. Being a trans woman is like a Trojan horse to be able to get into spaces to cause, to cause chaos and do inappropriate things. And so that question, again, are trans people confused or trying to trick others? We spoke to Paris Munro about this. I would not be going through mental hell, hormonal hell and physical hell for for you. I'm not I'm not here to trick you. I'm here to live my life. Just like you live in your best life, living who you are. I've considered running away to be who I am. It's really not the case of tricking anyone. For example, when it comes to like bathrooms and, and spaces and there will be a point where with this hormone replacement therapy that I'm on, that I won't be able to use the female bathrooms when I feel safe in there. It's either go into one bathroom and get shouted at or go into another bathroom and get beaten up. So another question for you. Do you think women are being erased because of trans people? No. <laughs> That's the short answer. That's for the sure. short answer. No. You know, that, that seems like a really big, heavy bit of terminology to use, this idea of erasure, that, you know, we're going to... You know, there aren't going to be women anymore. There's just going to be men and, and trans people or something. It's all it's, it's just all, it's just all very dramatic. Yeah. And I can laugh about it in one sense, but also I could cry about it in others because this is real. This isn't just yeah. some lighthearted debate. People genuinely believe this and are, are taken to the streets, taken to social media saying that this is a this is potentially a reality that that women are just being treated abysmally as because of the the trans rights movement one of the arguments from like a, a feminist side is that we've fought for us rights and like we don't want anything to change that but surely going through that whole process of doing that would make you more like empathetic to the trans communities and who's now doing the same thing yeah it's a fair point <laughs> it's a fair point on to topic five. Trans females will dominate female sports if allowed to compete. Uh, yeah, this is, this is going to cause... <laughs> I, I tell you now, um, I think the panel are feeling exactly the same as probably a lot of you sat out there um, thinking, oh, this is a tough one. <laughs> it, it is, and this is why it's so, so debated and so in the public eye at the moment, because it, it's very nuanced. But just going kind of your, your gut reactions. Well, my gut reaction is it's a myth. But as you said, it's been very topical of late. Mm -hmm. It's quite a complicated question. Compl yeah. Lots of, on one level, it would be good if trans females do really well in sport. But my feeling is there's probably not that many anyway. Yeah, it's probably a myth. That is the thing. Obviously, you'd want them to have be able to be in the like female like section or like you know, the other way around. I don't know. Would it not like depend like what age you transition? Say if you know you did puberty blockers or you didn't, would your body not? Develop different. I think this is where, well, me and I'm guessing like other people, like there is like science and stuff mm -hmm. behind it. This is not just like your gender identity. Mm -hmm. I think that image that was shared in the media mm -hmm. though was a tricky image. It was it's powerful. The swimming contest. There is such a difference, and I can see why people would be questioning. Yeah. Firstly, thank you all for just being honest about this because. People need to say they're not sure or actually they, they do have some concerns. I know all of you here are very pro-trans rights, but this is the one that just needs that little bit more of unpicking and understanding. And my take on it is that, you know, athletes come in all shapes and sizes. I played women's football at quite a high level for many, many number of years and I was very tiny compared to some of the people that used to mark me that were like six foot. One even bit me, marking me in the box and I've still got a scar. Um, anyway, that's by the by. But, you know, 
I'm saying is, you know, within sport, there are lots of different types of bodies. Some women naturally stronger than others. Some are taller than others. And if you look at in swimming, <clears throat> there are some just natural advantages. I have really big feet. Um, one particular swimmer has absolutely massive webbed feet. <laughs> and that is a, a huge benefit when swimming. A kind of the first step really is to acknowledge that because I think we're making out that women are kind of, I don't know, really fragile in sport and that suddenly trans women are going to come in and they're naturally going to be stronger. Yeah. But you, you made a really good point kind of around puberty blockers and things. There is science that proves if a person has been on hormones for a certain uh, length of time, it dramatically changes the body. Um, and that includes bone density, muscle mass, stamina. That does change. Mm. So I can use myself as an example, obviously going from being born female and, and having testosterone, my muscle mass has greatly increased. I, I am physically stronger. Um, and I now play a cis men's football team in stealth, which means no one knows on the team that I was born female. So I just play as a male yeah. and get away with it. If they were not to take estrogen, there is potentially an argument. It's elite level sport. So elite is, you know, the Olympics, the Commonwealth. The problem with this debate is it's filtering into grassroots now, which is just people who want to have a go. What are those, like, rules currently? Do you know, like, what? Yeah, it's really mixed, and it's changed quite recently. The rugby sporting bodies have really taken a, a massive U-turn and now are outrightly banning trans women from competing in women's rugby. Before, it was on a case-by-case -case basis. You'd just apply to the FA, you'd show your medical reports, you'd show how long you'd been on hormones, and they'd make a decision whether or not you were suitable to play. But more recently, again, as the trans... Debate has rolled on, sporting bodies are now kind of listening to the kind of gender critical side of things and are now trying to protect women in sport by stopping trans women. But why has that changed if there's a case by case and that's been working and... Unfortunately, it's pandering to moral panic. That's what, yeah. how I feel. And it's, it's people getting too easily swayed by what's happening and not actually look at the evidence. There is scientific evidence out there. Just just to note, there's, there's never been a trans woman win any Olympic yeah. level. You know, The ones that are there, Laurel, who's a weightlifter, mm -hmm. has not won in, in her category of weightlifting against cis women. Leah Thomas you know, did well in the swimming. And, and you mentioned, obviously, that, that quite stark image mm -hmm. showing that They've gone from being a good, competent male swimmer to being a good, competent female swimmer. It's not mm. like they've, they've suddenly come into this female category mm. and absolutely yeah. destroying the competition. I just think we need to just be very careful. And at elite level, there are methods in place to assess someone's suitability and they are taken very seriously. The fact it's, it's now leaking into grassroots sport is what concerns me, that children are being turned away from sporting clubs when really mixed gender sport is allowed up to a certain age anyway. And again, people are going to be listening, they're going to be screaming and saying, Lee, you, you're looking at this from a really narrow perspective and actually th there is going to be a physical advantage. Not in every case. And also it can be taken case by case. And we don't need to do these blanket bans. They're so dangerous and they hurt everybody. And actually, again, if we all sat around in a room and looked at the facts and not just what lazy journalism has to say, mm. there are good reports out there around bone density, muscle density, lung capacity, and that these things can be changed by taking hormones not in every case, and some people won't meet those requirements. I think as well, obviously, most people don't know that, the you know, the science you just kind of pointed out. So if a, a trans woman would win something, it'd get knocked because yeah. there were trans that wouldn't actually be able to just succeed. So uh, a question for you uh, all. Should they open up a transgender category? Because that's been suggested. What about having man, you know, male category, female category, and a, and a, a trans and non-binary uh, category separate in the Olympics, so I think it's an easy way out, as we like said earlier. Like it's putting them in their own yeah. thing, and that's really not the point yeah. of what they're trying it's to. Not a solution, is it? Yeah, oh. it's funny that no one's actually asked the trans community. Is that something you'd want? Because it would help to ask. Because I imagine most trans people in sport wouldn't want that. They want to just compete yeah. and not be othered. So on to our final topic, which is trans children and trans young people which, again, is something else you know, I'm personally incredibly passionate about through the work I do, but also needs to be discussed because trans youth are really struggling. So, truth or myth, children are not too young to know their gender. To a certain extent, obviously, like a one-year-old's not going to know what gender they are, but I think, well, I used to play football in, like, when in primary school and I understood that I was playing with boys and I weren't a boy. I mean, I can only compare it to my sexuality, which is I think I knew I was gay from a very early age. I probably didn't have the right words for it. I didn't quite understand, but I knew I was slightly different. And I do think children have an awareness of their, their gender very early on. I think it's just let them explore it. 
see how they feel. I think there's nothing more powerful than storytelling and any of the stories that we've heard from any background, people have known from a very young age, but not known what was different and just giving access to topics and agendas that might let them interpret what they're feeling and feel happier in themselves, I think is really important. Yeah. For me, I think the concept of gender comes to us quite early on and that there has been some research from the American Academy of Pediatrics that says by age four, most children have a stable sense of their gender identity. You know, I'm fortunate enough to have, you know, two younger children and they, they, they know who they are and they know what they're not. And they, they often enter into discussions with me about that, about what they like, they don't like. It's no different to having a particular taste in food. They know that they, you know, don't like bananas. They know toys they want to play with, what friends they want to go, the places they like. And their sense of gender identity is pretty strong. We never question cisgender young people's identity, do we? We never say, oh, are you sure? And children are just children. And, you know, what's the harm with just letting them explore? And mm. I think the binary genders are so damaging. I'm not knocking anybody that wants to raise their child in a binary way. That's not what the trans agenda is truth or myth children in the uk are too young to go through gender reassignment surgery what did we touch on this earlier we Go certainly on. did you've got to be over the age of 18 before. well you get the next prize of the day <laughs> well done yeah. you're right um under current uk law yeah. you have to be 18 or over to begin gender reassignment surgery no one is operating on children all that young people can access is hormone blockers which are a really beneficial life-saving thing a final question are children too young to be taught in school about being transgender so recently there's been a, a bit of a call to educate people in primary school do you feel that maybe is too young no what should that curriculum look like i mean it's a reflection of diversity of society isn't it and yes some people grow up in areas where there's a great deal of cultural diversity and they see it maybe other communities they don't don't see it you know, I'm not a parent, but I've got nieces and nephews and I hope they get a good worldview and are being able to lead happy lives. I think that's the most important thing, you know. That's the thing I suffered from most when I went to school. I, I was on my own and I wanted to be invisible as well and hide who I was and was terrified that I would say something that would give me away. Um, another plug, and I was probably not supposed to do it, but the, the, the Netflix series... Heartstopper mm -hmm. is absolutely amazing. If I had seen that when I was at school, oh, it would be amazing. Yeah. I, I have watched it with my nieces and nephews, and I always cry at the end yeah. of every episode. And they said, "But it's not sad, Ian." And it's like, "Oh, it is," because it's like what, <laughs> what I would could have, have been, at, where I could yeah. have been. Yeah. But it's yeah. lovely, and that's the sort of thing they don't need to have tons of input, but just to see that there are people out there and they're different. Absolutely. And Kat, as a parent, how, you know, how do you feel having, you know, children of multitude ages and them having that trans education? I think there is so much opportunity in the school. There's so many different elements it could touch upon. I mean, Ian touched upon that diversity, so it's reflective of the world. I think well-being and mental health, about being happy in yourself. The physiology side of things, I mean, they do sex education later on in primary school. It fits in so many different areas as an opportunity to have that diverse discussion. So children who are feeling, you know, unsure of themselves, they can see a reflective character. They can resonate with someone or, um, you know... There's just lots of opportunity, I think. How about you, Lucy? Any thoughts on that? Just, yeah, as you said, I think it gives them the vocabulary to be like, oh, it might be really insightful to someone. And, like, if they recognise that earlier on in life, they're probably going to lead a, you know, a more healthy life as they grow on. It's about normalising things, isn't it? It's just about saying it's OK. Yeah. It's not about promoting a particular way of life, but it's just acknowledging that these people exist, are valid and are not to be frightened of. So that final question, are children too young to be taught in school about being gender diverse? We spoke to Cleo Madeline about that. There's a huge conversation going on at the moment about relationship and sex education or, or RSE and how it should be taught in schools. One of the ways it's being driven is by critics who are saying that children in school are too young to learn about gender identity. One of the really sinister things about this is that these same critics are actually using gender identity as a kind of hot-button issue to push farther and say that no sex education should be given on the LGBT community. And increasingly it feels that we're being pushed back towards Section 28. What happened under Section 28 was that there was no discussion of what the, the law calls the homosexual lifestyle, 
It meant that young LGBT plus people had no guidance, leading to plummeting mental health, poor sexual health, and a kind of generational loss of knowledge, the damage of which is still being felt. If you get past the scaremongering, you see that for years, many, many RSE programs have already been teaching about gender identity with no negative impact on young people whatsoever. So just some final thoughts, you know, there'll be people listening who may think some of this applies to them. They may think they, they might be transgender, gender diverse, non-binary and, and are thinking, you know, I'd really like to get some help and support. Help and support is out there. So don't feel alone if you sat there thinking some of this applies to me. Get out there, talk to people, talk to trusted adults and get some support and help and, and don't do what so many trans people did and, and bury it deep inside you and become that 86 year old that only finally gets to come out in that, those late stages of their life. You know, my advice is to be follow your heart and, and just be your authentic self because that's, that's all that matters at the end of the day. I hope you've taken something away, everyone who is listening. Uh, thanks to you all and goodbye. Virgin Radio. Pride. You're listening to Living Authentically, Trans Truths, with myself, Stephanie Hurst, on Virgin Radio Pride. You just heard the awesome Lee Lester from Mermaids, along with Kat Haig, Ian Mallett and Lucy Daly, with Cleo Madeline and Paris Monroe. Thanks to all of them for getting involved. Although we've tackled some of the misinformation surrounding the trans community in the time we've had today, it goes far beyond this. So we asked our contributors for their main source of support during their gender discovery. Just where can people go to educate themselves and bust the misconceptions around trans people? Stonewall is is great. The LGBT Foundation, amazing. Trans in the City, brilliant to try and get trans education into businesses to help people in companies and in your workplace and stuff like that. Um, also therapy with lgbtq plus friendly people speak to your doctor facebook and twitter and instagram really really good for this because there's like loads of communities you can reach not a phase who is um run by dan danny st james there's just so much out there if you google trans support you you'll see lots and lots of stuff come up so make use of this I would really encourage, especially if it's a young person figuring out gender, to seek out charities like Gendered Intelligence. You know, youth groups who've got the Proud Trust in Manchester. That can be an incredible way of meeting people like you. And equally, I think now we have so many really great books, so, so much great media representation. You know, we're seeing trans characters predominantly in media. Like, um, But there's certain books that I'd really recommend. There's How to Understand Your Gender by Meg John Barker. It's a really good book and it really takes you through it. And I think a lot of people could learn from it, even cis people. I think it to kind of interrogate yourself in that way is really important work. There have been studies done on young trans people that have found that the only thing that leads to a more substantial increase, uh, improvement, sorry, in mental health outcomes than access to healthcare is parental and peer support. Now that doesn't mean, oh, we just need to get everyone peer support instead of healthcare. They're both absolutely necessary. But it really drives home that a lot of the difficulty, some, sometimes the quite serious pain, can be in great part alleviated if you are well supported, if you have those people who will say, I'm here to support you, what do you need? And so finding that support network and those people close to you it was so, so important for me. So, as trans allies, people who are the same gender as their assigned birth sex, or any other group of people in our society, ask yourself this. What can you do to help trans people combat misinformation and be more included and respected in society? Down to the very, very basics. Listen, respect people's names, pronouns, don't belittle anybody, the word ally. The fact that you are an ally is so, so important to our community because then you can help, you can stand up for us when we're not there. It's when we're not in the room, that's when it matters the most. If something's not right, say something. You don't have to be aggressive. You can absolutely say it in a non-invasive way of trying to like educate somebody. It's to educate yourselves as well because... 
It can be really exhausting having to explain to everybody what it's like to be trans or what non-binary really means and being open-minded. Not having to feel like you have to challenge someone as soon as they tell you who they are. Sometimes it's okay to accept something without necessarily fully understanding it. Things like writing to your MP. Lots and lots and lots of MPs in the UK, contrary to what you might think, don't just sit around all day. If you want to support the trans community, then get out there into the community. See what uh, local organisations there are. See if they need any help, any volunteers, any donations. If we look to our communities, we, we can really make a difference in people's lives, like today. When it boils down to it, trans people just want to live their lives as authentically as possible. Free from unwanted criticism and without hate or misinformation. They deserve the same respect and dignity as anyone else and should be able to enjoy rich, rewarding lives, fulfilling careers, relationships and families, just like any group of people. If you are one of the thousands of people considering your gender identity, whatever you do, make sure you do your own research. Talk to your GP. Search for support by reaching out to trans organisations or your queer community. Whatever you do, take your time because no two journeys are the same. And for anyone struggling to come to terms with their gender identity, well, we've got a few words of support from some people who want to send you their love and cheer you on. Courtesy of the She Said, They Said podcast from Mermaids. That you are brilliant and unique. Just remember that. There is literally nobody that is like you. So whatever unique talent you have, whatever passion you have, always follow that because I promise you that is going to be the key to your happiness. Hi everyone, it's me Tia Coffee from RuPaul's Drag Race UK Series 2 and I just want to send a message to all the incredible trans people who are listening right now. You're all valid, you're all amazing and I love you. If you're a young trans and non-binary kid or older person who hasn't come out, please know there are phenomenal communities of people just like you waiting to brace you with open arms. You offer so much to the world. Never stop being your incredible self. You are iconic. This is your boy, Frank, Frank, Frank. Just popping on here to infect your life with positive vibes and good energy. The homophobes are out. It can seem like Life is not worth living. I don't know about you, but I disagree. In times like this, we need to step more into our queer joy and our queer self. Live loud, live proud, be ferociously yourself and live authentically as you. This has been Living Authentically, Trans Truths on Virgin Radio Pride with myself, Stephanie Hurst. It's been a true honour to be with you today. We'd like to say a massive thank you to everyone involved in today's show, including everyone at Mermaids. With a special thanks to Beck Sharonk and Lee Lester, our live discussion group, and all of our contributors, including Paris Munro, Cleo Madeline, Shivani Dave, and Gray Marlowe. Living Authentically, Trans Trues was produced and recorded by This Is Distorted in Leeds, UK. Hold up. 